Hi, folks, and welcome to another episode of the Team Builder Podcast. I am your host, Hewitt Tomlin. Uh, before we begin here, just want to talk a little bit about some new features coming out. Um, communication, it's a big deal. Messaging, texting, email. Coaches use it, business owners use it. And uh, because of that, we decided to renovate how Team Builder does communication. For instance, people love our push notifications, um, those notifications that come out on people's mobile apps. Um, anyway, we're going to let people schedule those out. Uh, and even create recurring push notifications through the Team Builder mobile app. Um, so that and much more is coming out or has already come out uh, through Team Builder. So if you have not tried Team Builder, consider a 14-day free trial. Today's guest is JL Holdsworth. He is out of Columbus, Ohio. When I first met JL, he was giving a RPR seminar. So RPR is Reflexive Performance Reset. Um, it's basically a system uh, for activating, even though JL doesn't like that word, activating the human body's central nervous system uh, to prepare to perform. This is like a deep concept and we get into it towards the end of the podcast. Prior to getting into that, JL and I talk about his powerlifting background. We talk about his gym, which I love, by the way. JL is the kind of guy where if you saw him you know, out in the wild, you'd be like, man, this guy definitely runs a powerlifting bodybuilding gym. He's you know, just a giant of a man. And uh, he works with a ton of gen pop and he works on pain management and improving people's quality of life. That's his gym. So he's doing a great job at it. Uh, we have a great conversation. We talk a little bit about programming, uh, talk about warm-ups, nervous system, all sorts of stuff. Hope you enjoy it. All right, here I am with JL Holdsworth. Uh, JL, are you out of Columbus right now? That's right, man, Columbus, Ohio. All right, that's where it's at. So JL and I met a couple of years ago at an RPR clinic. Um, it blew my mind. I love those clinics so much. Um, but I especially loved the, the clinic that you put on, which was at Holy Cross. I don't know if you remember that clinic. Yeah, that was a great. I love those guys at Holy Cross. They're, they're just wonderful people. So yeah, I remember that for sure. Awesome. So um, JL, we have quite a bit to talk about. But the first thing I wanted to get into was your background as a power lifter. I think anyone who is a professional at making themselves stronger and a professional at making other people stronger, they carry a lot of weight in the strength and conditioning industry. Um, so maybe we could talk about that a little bit. As I recall, the first time I heard you describe your powerlifting career, in a way, I think you didn't do, a, do it a service because you talked about how you were naturally strong at picking things up and putting them down. Uh, but obviously there's a lot more to it than that. So can you talk a little bit about your, your powerlifting career? Yeah, I think for me, uh, you know, I started played sports growing up, played football in college. So all my training really until I got done with college football was geared around sports. Uh, obviously back then information wasn't as available. So really everything I learned was from people in the gym and magazines, you know, so it wasn't necessarily performance based as much as it was get stronger bodybuilding style of lifting. And so when I got done with college, my actually my last before my last summer of college, uh, I was for my girlfriend at the time. Her sister was training uh, for weightlifting at Olympic Training Center. So I went out there for the summer and, you know, I learned uh, I had done we had done Olympic weightlifting football, but we were doing it way wrong. And I mean, no one had ever taught me. So going out there was wonderful. Uh, learned how to you know, do that. And, and because I was exposed to it and I was around such a high level, obviously people train for the Olympics, 
I came back and I said, Oh, you know, f- football got done. I said, I'm going to do this. And, uh, you know, I started really training weightlifting and I found out really quickly, I was not built to do that. And so I, I spent a lot of time working on it and I just wasn't, that wasn't where my, uh, I wasn't built for it. And then I was, I went to the university of Kentucky and I was interviewing for a position and I was over on the, you know, weightlifting platforms doing my thing. And there was guys squatting with chains and, and then they were doing some stuff with bands and I'd never, you know, this is, I don't know, 2000, I'd never seen it. Someone already just said, what are you guys doing? And they started explaining, you know, conjugate and Westside barbell and all these things that I honestly, at the time, I mean, I, I didn't know about any of those. And so, uh, you know, is the guy on the platform is Jim Wendler. So Wendler, uh, ended up, he was leaving to go work for elitefts.com. And I basically replaced his position. And when I got to Kentucky or well, before I got there, uh, I started reading everything I could on conjugate and, you know, Westside barbell and elite FTS and, you know, started doing seminars, uh, you know, going and learning. And, uh, you know, I started training powerlifting and loved it. And, and, you know, kind of, as you alluded to, I, I had a natural gift for powerlifting. I was built to do that. And I think, you know, one point for people, and I think this is an important point for all strength coaches, anybody in fitness who has anybody squat, different people, their hip sockets are different depths. So the first person I really heard explain this well was Stu McGill. And he was talking about how he had known this lady who way back before there was all the imaging there is now her basically forensic expertise was based on people's hip uh, builds. She would identify where they came from geographically. And so she could look at someone's remains and go, yeah, that person is of Celtic origin and this person is of Polish origin. And one of the things, so we kind of at the spot athletics, we talk about, do they have a Polish hip or a Celtic hip? And if they have a Celtic hip, it's very deep and they can't squat really low, not, not any mobility, literally the structures are in place and they break up, you know, basically you're just pushing against bone, whereas a Polish hip is thinner and they can move. And so I actually know quite a few people, a lot of O-linemen who their strength coaches made them squat, you know, butt to ankle, right? You got to get all the way down. Well, they couldn't, but then you start putting four or 500 pounds on, right? And there's bone there. Well, now we can reshape bone a little bit, which then ends up in a hip replacement and surgery and FAI, you know, uh, femoral impingement. And so honestly, that squat all the way down piece, for a lot of people, you know, holding the same depth range for everyone, you could be basically grinding away someone's. It's, uh, it's, it's really interesting, uh, that, you know, in that squatting world, we we've done that. So for me, man, I, I, you know, I couldn't squat. That was where I was. I couldn't get down under a clean or a snatch because of the way my hips were built. Well, I don't need to get there for deadlifting and squatting. So it turns out it's pretty good. Ended up doing my first meet, total 2160 in my first meet. Uh, beat How all the guys. You, when you did that? So probably uh, maybe 22, 23, because. Uh, Is that unusual to be that young and, and compete that well? Um, I don't. I, I mean, basically, my first meet, I had a top 10 total in the country. So. Uh, I, I would say probably, yeah, it's probably not, uh, normal that 
by my fourth meet, I had the fourth highest total in the world all time. Uh, that that's probably not normal. Um, so, I mean, my first meet, I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, I, I bench pressed, I don't know, six thirty in my first meet. So, uh, I, I don't, you know, shirts are a little better now, but I still think that that's a difficult lift for people in their first meet. Uh, and I mean, eventually, uh, I did seven seventy five. Uh, and so, you know, I had a gift for bench pressing. I was fairly good at the other lifts. I deadlifted 804 and squatted over 900. So, uh, I was, I was well-rounded. So it gave me a good total. And for people who don't understand powerlifting, you squat, you bench, you deadlift, and you add those up for your total. So, yeah. And that's what you did at a very early age and, and your, your career in powerlifting. Um, I, I've seen some people powerlift competitively for a very long time. It seems hard to do. Um, what's the average lifespan for a powerlifter and what's the primary reason for them to, uh, cease competing? Well, I mean, I think it's different for everyone, right? There's so many reasons it's personal for me. Uh, you know, in 2004, I was uh, in training, I was doing 1100 pound squat, herniated L5 S1. And that took me out of competitive powerlifting for 10 years. Uh, you know, I always say that that injury, it, took me out of professional powerlifting. It, it was a really hard personally. It was, it was a challenge to go from, you know, you're one of the all time strongest people in the world to now my roommate has to help me put on my underwear. That that's, that's a hard thing to deal with yeah. mentally, uh, is much and probably more than physically. However, uh, I really think I wouldn't be the strength coach I am today if I hadn't gone through that because it forced me to look outside the box and learn because I went to these doctors and they said, Oh, and I went to two different orthos. You have to have back surgery. You have to have back surgery. And luckily for me, my roommate at the time who trained at Westside, his dad was in charge of orthopedic surgery uh, at a hospital in Louisville. And I called him and I said, what, you know, Hey, I've gotten two opinions. He goes, look behind closed doors and no one will ever say this to your face. Orthopedic surgeons 100% admit they have no clue what they're doing with lower backs. And so he goes, don't get surgery because honestly, people who don't get surgery, as long as you rehab and do things, usually end up better off than the people who do. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that's something we can talk about later on, but it's real essential, right? Modern medicine puts band-aids on the symptoms versus addressing the cause. And that's one of the things RPR gets into is dealing with the cause of the issue versus putting a band-aid on symptoms. So, you know, if I had my lower back issue, L5S1, if I get that fused and I don't address the cause, well, a couple of years later, it's either, it's just going to move up my spine. I'm going to have to have L4 and L3 fused together, right? It's just going to be a lifetime of issues unless you address the cause. And so I had to search outside the box, travel, learn. And that injury made me exponentially better strength coach. And, you know, uh, in 2000, you know, I used all that knowledge and experience. And in 2014, I worked my way back, won a world championship in the deadlift. Wow. Amazing. We're going to circle back to this when we talk about RPR later in the conversation, but I want to hone in a little bit on your gym, which as we mentioned is based in Columbus, Ohio. It, you know, if you mention Columbus, Ohio to the, to the lay person, they'll think about Westside Barbell. They'll think about the Arnold being hosted there. Um, but there's probably more to it than that. So before we talk about your gym specifically, what is it about Columbus? And do you think Columbus probably has the richest history in the U S as far as weightlifting and strength training? Well, I think the, the one big piece you forgot about was the Buckeyes. I mean, Ohio state football, mm-hmm is i mean it's so huge here you know i can tell you i grew up in michigan and you know 
people are definitely sports fans there. It, it is different here because in Michigan, you have Michigan state, you have Michigan. There, I mean, there's division, there's a professional football team. It, it's just divisions here. You've got the Bengals, you, you've got the Browns, you've got two teams and everybody in the state is a Buckeyes fan, right? It just yeah. is. And I mean, my, my son in preschool, I mean, he's two years old. He, he obviously can't spell, but he already knows O H I O because you know, it's fine. I mean, it's ingrained from, from really early age. So it, the culture here in Ohio for football is, is incredible. And uh, I would say as far as strength training and those things, yeah, I, I think, you know, with the Arnold, with Westside Barbell, with lot, it, it's definitely, I don't know if I would say it's, it's got the richest history, right? Because that that's debatable. I would say it's definitely got one of, one of the richest uh, places to be when it comes to strength training and, and strength conditioning. Yeah. So again, going back to that lay person, like, uh, you know, mother at the grocery store, if you, if you told that mother that you ran a gym, you know, just by looking at you, she'd probably assume it was an old school powerlifting gym or you know bodybuilding gym, but that's not the case with the spot athletics, is it? You guys are a comprehensive gym. You're an athletic training performance facility. Why don't you say, tell a little bit about what the spot athletics is in uh, Columbus? Yeah, I remember we we started very small, 2,000 square feet. We were subleasing space uh, inside of a large volleyball primarily complex. And when we subleased the space, uh, we put this black chain link fence that was six feet high around our space, basically in the corner of the warehouse. And the guy who... Oh, sorry. My, my headphones that's just... A, that's okay. Audio quality is the, is the same. Uh, so basically... You know, he looked at me and I, I mean, at the time I was, I don't know, 300 pounds or a little bit more. And he said, oh, you guys going to, it's going to be powerlifting and all this. And <laughs> no, man, those guys break shit and have no money. So that is not the audience I want to serve. And from, from day one, uh, the spot athletics was really about performance training. Right. And so, you know, sport life, whatever, whatever it is you want to do, you have to perform at, at a high level. And for us, whether you're eight years old, you're a pro athlete, you're 80 years old, it really is about building better movement. And, and, you know, we say this all the time, you know, our, our young kids, very few of them are going to become professional athletes. They all need to be professional human beings. And so for us, when we look at developing the young athlete or even our adults, we really look at a long-term athletic development model. And so, you know, when people call the spot athletics and look, we're very fortunate. Uh, we have two 20,000 square foot facilities at, in Columbus. And, you know, the first facility we have, uh, it, you know, we built it over time. And so it's interesting because there's some different color equipment and we have our old logos in, in one of the turfs that we have. And it's interesting. And, and our other location that's in Dublin, it, I mean, we rebranded and colors. I mean, everything's custom call. I mean, it's, it's honestly, it's, I walk in most days and go, man, I can't believe we built this. So, uh, the Grandview location is more my personality, right? It's, it's, a little more old school. It's cut up. It's, it's got some cool kind of, you know, different aspects to it. And we have some beams in there that we've welded some different grip implements to. So it's got some fun functions and, and our Dublin facility, they're both great facilities. They're just, they have the same equipment, essentially just different feels to them. And, uh, you know, we're very fortunate with two 20,000 square foot facilities. We operate as a private fitness facility. So no one, we have no memberships, 
everyone who comes in is working with a coach. Uh, and we do that so we can maintain the standards and the quality of everything that's happening when we come in. And I think for us, you know, I talk to, I mean, when people call, the thing we say to people is, you know, we do things differently. And because we do them differently, we're not for everybody. And, and anybody who calls in our training, that's the first thing we tell them. Because to me, what most people think of when they think of, you know, strength conditioning, when they think of fitness, it's this, ah, working so hard and puking. And, and so we tell people, what we mean by different is that if you're looking to just get destroyed every single workout, we're not the place for you. Right. But if you're looking for sustainable long-term results and actually improving your movement, your performance, how you feel, how you look, how you perform, then we're, you're going to love what we do. You know how it, it's, but if you're just looking to come in here and just get as sweaty and wiped out as possible, every workout, you know, there's other places that do that. And look, it's funny because I was talking to a friend and I honestly, as much time and effort we put into our coach education, our programming, and we put so much time and effort into it. It was funny. I was talking to a friend the other day and go, honestly, I feel like sometimes I'm the dumb one because if I just didn't care about the quality and we just destroyed people every day, that's actually what most people think they want, right? Mm -hmm. The thing is, is I, <laughs> I have too much integrity to do that because the way that we talk about when people come in is look, anybody, you know, my eight-year-old daughter can make you throw up from a workout if I offer an American girl doll. So, so if you're judging the quality of the workout on what an eight-year-old can put you through, maybe you ought to change your metrics. And, you know, it's interesting. And, you know, some people, right, they do just want to get destroyed. And that's okay. We're just not the place for that. We're for people who want great coaching, long-term results. And you see gyms, and they understand there's a market for that. And they might devote a portion of their gym, a portion of their services to that. And they kind of see it as, you know, we provide everything. That's an option for you. But it, again, if you want to focus your efforts on the quality of the the training you provide, you have to forego that, don't you? Yeah, I mean, and that's why I said sometimes we're dumb ones, right? Because all I know, I could have eight-year-olds working for me running the workouts because there's no technique they got to coach, and it's just run around and get tired, right? I can have 10-year-olds coaching for me. I don't have to pay them, right, because they're 10. Uh, and so, so I think maybe sometimes that might be a better business model for making money, but the whole point of the Spot Athletics, our mission isn't make as much money as possible. It's to impact and inspire as many people as possible through world-class coaching. And so that's got to be world-class. And world-class is not just making people throw up because they think they need that. You know, here's the thing. I have a term for it. I call it junk food fitness. Because the thing is, it's junk food. It makes you feel good kind of in the moment, right? And But you feel shitty a little bit later on. And that's what it is. It's junk food fitness. And the thing is, is when people come in, what we talk to them about is what we're going to do at the spot, right? You're the, we call it pain-free body work. That's like eating your fruits and vegetables, right? Your strength, your main part of the workout, right? All of those things, that, that's your meat and potatoes. Then that kind of high-intensity conditioning stuff, that's your junk food. Now, here's the thing. If you want to be healthy from your diet, you have to have a balanced diet, right? So you got to eat fruits and vegetables. You got to eat meat and tips. And guess what? Having some junk food every once in a while is good. It's nice to have those treats, right? So for us, that's how we explain our training. You're paying us. Look, everyone will eat the junk food on their own. You're paying us. 
because we're going to make you eat your fruits and vegetables and we're going to ensure that your meat and potatoes don't don't hurt you. And, and so that's the whole point, right? Anybody can do the junk food part. And so that's why people think they want it. It's like people thinking they want junk food because it feels good in the moment. You feel like you're doing something hard, so it must be good. Hard isn't good. If I punch you in the face, it's hard. It ain't going to make you mo- mo- any more fit, right? And so this is the thing that people really has to change in our industry. And I'll tell you, the biggest point to changing this uh, when it comes to high school, college, professional strength and conditioning is number one, the name of our profession has to change because we have at the spot athletics, we have a pyramid of athletic development. And in that pyramid of athletic development, breathing is the base, then sleep, then mindset, then nutrition. We got four layers to our pyramid of athletic but before you even get to training. Then when we get to training, it's flexibility first, because look, if you can't get in the positions for the sport, it doesn't matter how strong you are. And then after flexibility comes speed. And then after speed comes strength and conditioning at the very, very top of the pyramid. So our whole industry, the thing we focus on as an industry are literally the two least important things in athletic development. And so to me, until that perception changes, we're, we're going to be hamstringed a little bit in, in our profession because people's perception of what should be happening is partly based off just the name of our industry, which are the two least important things in someone's performance. Mm-hmm. But with that set of principles as the foundation for your gym, what does your clientele end up looking like? What proportion of your clients are competing in organized athletics versus general population, which, you know, those are the ones that it, it's hard to tell what they want. What does your gym look like? Well, you know, I have a saying, right? Looking good naked never goes out of season. And for us, right, the the adult population, the general pop, that's the base of what we do. Uh, I don't think you can run a performance or fitness type facility and, and just train kids and athletes because, uh, well, you can, right? You, you can do it. It just comes down to do you want a job or do you want a business? Right. And I, I want a business. And what I know is if we only have clients from, you know, four to 8 p.m., that I, I can work that. I can maybe have one person staff that. Right. But I need to have adults coming in all day long. I need to have kids coming in in the afternoon. Right. And so, you know, we have some pro athletes in the morning. But look, the amount of pro athletes you're going to work with, are, they're going to be a small percentage. Why? They're a small percentage of the population. I mean, it's just, it's math. And so unless you live in maybe Miami or LA where, you know, that percentage of the population rises tremendously. And look, Columbus is amazing. It pumps out a ton of NFL guys, right? From the Buckeyes. But look, they go to school here. If they're in the league, they're, they, they don't probably live here. And so they'll come home, right, to visit and things. I mean, there's some guys that live here. But, you know, this – I think this is this misnomer because everybody, you know, they put up – and look, we do it too. Everybody, you know, from a marketing perspective, you put up the pro athletes. But yeah. to me – Mike Boyle says, I, I do it because I have to. Yeah, yeah you, you do. I mean, that it, because parents want to see it, right? I mean, they do. It, it's just yeah. what it is. Uh, and so for us, I mean, our bread and butter is, is pretty much what everyone else's bread and butter are. It's youth athletes, middle school, high school, and it's general pop. And for us, because we are private, our, our general pop 
tends to be, you know, they have a little more disposable income, right? We get a lot of people, honestly, who, you know, once they, uh, you know, I would say our average adult clients more 35 to 55, um, you know, we don't have a population of, you know, just out of college to, you know, that 25 to 30 type of age range or 23, whatever you want to call it. And the reason we don't is because a lot of those people are, are again, right. They're into junk food fitness because guess what? When you're 23, you can eat a ton of junk food and your body doesn't really bother you. When you get older, you start getting about 35, you eat a lot of junk food and you feel like crap. And so we honestly get a lot of people who've been eating, you know, they've been having junk food fitness for a long time and they come to us and they hurt and they want to feel better. Would it be fair to say that your cachet with your clientele and your gym is based on your experience post-injury where you essentially committed your life to exploring pain, becoming pain-free, quality of life, quality of movement, more so than your experience as a, as a champion powerlifter? A hundred percent. I mean, we, we have a powerlifting group, but it's, you know, it's, it's very small percentage of, of what we do. I love powerlifting. I always want to support the sport. It's, it's just not a big percentage of what we do. I mean, the, the thing is, right. You know, we have a, I don't know, 50 foot graphic that says, you know, hard work, right? Like we believe in, in working really hard. And the thing is, is working hard, right? So if I give you a spoon and tell you to dig a six foot hole, you're going to work really hard. But if I come along with a backhoe, I'm done in one scoop, right? So working hard isn't always a thing. You got to merge working smart and working hard. And so that's where for us, that's what we really talk about with our clients, right? You're never going to do anything hard just because it's hard. You're going to do it because it gets us to an end goal that we want to get to. And, you know, most people come to the spot, uh, a general population. And, you know, one of the things we say to them is, what are your goals? And everybody kind of says, oh, I wanna, you know, I'm going to look better and, make, you know, be a little stronger, whatever. That's kind of everyone's goals, right? Tone up, all that, lose fat. And so the, the question I'm, that we ask everyone from Jen Pop when they come in is, Okay, awesome. So you want to look great, lose fat. So if you look the best you ever looked in your life and you, you had a six-pack abs, all that, you looked amazing. But every morning you got out of bed, your back hurt so bad and your knees hurt when you walked, would that be okay with you? And, and everybody says no. And so, okay, well, then it sounds like your number one goal is to feel good. And then close behind that is to look good. And it's just reframing people, right? And we, we tell parents of athletes, I mean, the biggest thing we have to educate our parents on for athletes is we do a lot. I, I believe absolute speed is the key to athletics, right? Just like absolute strength is the key to powerlifting. And so for us, when parents come in, we have to educate them on what training absolute speed looks like. And it doesn't look like running around and doing, you know, jogging a mile and a half. And so, you know, they don't understand, hey, if we're doing absolute speed work, we might do four sprints, right? We might be two, four flies, 10 yard, 10 meter flies, 10 yard flies. We might do four of those and we might rest, you know, two minutes in between those. And that's it. Because once their time drops below uh, 10%, we're not doing, we're not doing absolute speed work anymore. Yeah. And yeah. parents, that, that, that one for us, that's probably the hardest because a lot of parents come in and they just want junk food fitness, right? They see the Instagram of the kids throwing up and being sweaty and they say, oh, that's what my kid needs. And I tell them straight up, look, 
if you want that, we're just not the place, right? We're, we're just not. I mean, you can get that. Look, any, you know, I need to start a side business for those people where my 15 year old son just trains them, right? And just, all right, be make, good. you know what I mean? Make Sounds like a better first job than my first job at the grocery, training people, you know, make them throw up. Well, you know, <laughs> my, first, my first job was uh, sweeping floors at a garage and dumping all the old oil from the oil changes. So, was, yeah, the whole point of the first job is is to to not have that job forever, in that right? Yeah, that's right. Maybe um, realize. APR- <laughs> um, all right, APRE. We talked about this a few days ago on the phone. You like it? Why do you like it? Well, uh, you know, so Brian Mann is, is is a friend of mine, and he did a, obviously a lot of the kind of initial work and research on it. So, you know, just with him being a friend of mine, I was able to have conversations with him, you know, years ago about it. And, you know, it's something that we played around with at the spot for a long time. And, you know, we've just seen really great success with it. And, you know, there's some things we've learned where, you know, for our population, right, we've had to tweak some, a few things because, we're not working with college athletes. Right. And that was so my it, next question. Gen yeah. pop folks like me, I'm, I'm 30. I don't compete athletically any longer. It, APRE for me looks a little different than the 18 year old you have in, in your facility. Well, I, I don't necessarily think it's based on age. I think, uh, it's, it's more based on training age and strength. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it, it comes down to the base of anything. You know, the thing that builds strength when you're first starting or, or, you know, your training age is young or your strength is low is volume. And so, you know, when we start looking at APRE fives, APR threes or sit, you know, especially getting down into the threes, you know, if you bench press a hundred pounds, you're just, it's not any volume. And so there's, you know, there's some adjustments that, you know, people want to run, you know, conjugate or APRE threes with a kid who bench presses hundred pounds. It's look though, everything again, to me, you have to have as many tools in your toolbox as possible. And, you know, I always say a hammer is an amazing tool until you got to clean windows. Right. And so the thing is, is people apply a hammer to a window and then bad things happen and they wonder why. And, you know, I love APRE. I, I think I, you know, there's a bench press program that I've given to some people for high school kids and, and honestly, people who adults of you and their bench is, I mean, skyrockets, right? I love APRE. I just think it's a phenomenal way because if you go straight percentages and someone comes in and they haven't slept or, you know, whatever's going on, you're telling them, and I saw this in college all the time, right? You know, I, obviously I was, you know, went through college and then was a strength coach in college. And I saw right at that point, it was all percentage based. And so, you know, it's 89%, it's 92% and kids are failing at lifts, you know? And so, and then the next set is 94%, right? And they already failed it. So it's, what's the point of that, right? We're now we're just putting numbers on sheets to have numbers on sheets. What I love about APRE is it, it in that day makes that adjustment and allows for fluctuations in performance. So the thing I always say, right, about APRE is it allows people to adjust so they can be appropriately challenged. Um, do you think there's a human component to APRE in, in, in regards to 
the effort and the competition that you elicit out of an athlete uh, during a during a lift during a session? Well, I, I think you know, anytime you put athletes together, they're competitive and they're doing something that that is in, you know in together where they can see what each other's performance is. You're, you're going to build that. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't necessarily know if Apiary builds more of that. I just think the nature of what it does and how it works you get some better performances out of that now mm-hmm. to me to me there's okay you have the really weak kids and and really just straight volume work for those kids is gonna be great so apiary tens is great eights are great uh when you start coming down there, there's some adjustments that need to be made from a volume perspective when you get into that mid-range of strengths kind of we're we're we've we've kind of hit some of those markers on, Hey, I'm, I'm decent. You know, I'm, I'm above beginner. I'm in that inter- intermediate phase, man, for the intermediate phase, apiary is just beautiful. You know, you really don't have to make adjustments when you get to the advanced phase. Uh, you know, then to me, uh, that's, that's where conjugate, I think becomes a little more prevalent for the advanced. You can use conjugate for the younger kids. It just becomes volume-based work. It's just not as true max effort works, more repetition effort. But, you know, for me, I, I, we, at the spot athletics, we use APRE, we use uh, triphasic training. I love, you know, Cal's obviously a good friend of mine. I love triphasic. You know, we use conjugate for us is what's our goal, right? And, and at the end of the day, for our athletes, it's better performance. And for our adult clients, it's so they feel good, they look better, and then they're strong enough to do what they want to do in life. Yeah. But you have some experience working with DBT as well, and you have some some thoughts on that. Do, do you feel like sharing those? Yeah. I, so I love, you know, t- to me, it's funny, right? It's just been doing it so long. I, you know, it's VBT. Obviously I know that. And obviously, you know, right. Brian did a lot. Sorry, of sorry, that's a tendo you know, yeah. Yeah. To me, it's just dynamic work. Cause that's, I mean, that's how I learned yeah. it. That's what, you know, I came up with. Right. And so, you know, I've been doing, you know, VBT obviously since, you know, whatever, 2000, 2000, I mean, for a long time. And I, I, I think, you know, it's interesting as athletes stage, I think it becomes more and more a necessity because as you age, your nervous system slows down and then that rate of force development slows down. And that's exactly what VBT works on. And so, you know, to me, I think there is this cross where, again, right. You know, people want to apply, right. They find a hammer. This is the best tool ever. I'm going to apply it to everybody. VBT is an amazing tool as well. Again, if somebody bench presses a hundred pounds, they they can't develop power. They're not strong enough, right? There's no replacement for displacement, right? A hundred horsepower engine doesn't matter how finely tuned it is, is never going to beat a hundred horsepower engine. And so, you know, there has to be a threshold. And, and the way I always describe it is this: once you get to a certain strength where you can do, you know, VBT work then it becomes what load are you using to maximize the performance gains you're looking for? And, you know, I I didn't, you know, I've done this at the spa, but, you know, for us, we look at, you know, from a lower body perspective, and, and usually this translates to the upper body as well. Our people grinders, right? Their absolute strength is very high, but they're not very explosive. Or are people just explosive, very tendon dependent athletes, Super explosive, not very strong. 
when we have these types of athletes and, you know, there's simple ways to do this. Right. And I think the simplest one is what's your vertical jump, what's your squat. And you look at those two numbers and if the squats disproportionately high to the vertical jump, we know not very explosive, strong. If the vertical jumps disproportional to, to the squat, awesome, explosive, not strong. So then when you're looking at your VBT work, all you do is bump percentages, right? You don't do 45% for everybody or 50% for everybody, whatever you want to do, right? Let's say 50 is our marker. You take that 50% and for the really strong guy that, that isn't very explosive, maybe it's 40%, right? Now for the super explosive, not strong guy, maybe it's 60%, right? That, you know, to me, we're going to range anywhere. I mean, could be, depends on what you're doing, gear, whatever, but, you know, in general, right, 35 to 55, maybe 60%, right? We could 30 to 60, depending but the key thing is, is you got to match the strength qualities and the way that person looks on the strength curve to the percentages you're using in VBT. Now, obviously, depending on, you know, what equipment you have to measure that, then, then the, basically the speed just tells you that equation. However, at the spot athletics, we're not going to line that up for everybody. It just isn't, it's cost prohibitive. Uh, is that one of the limitations of VBT is the lack of scalability? Well, I think there are some inexpensive models that give you a decent read. I just think it's it's a little harder to run in, in bigger settings. I think the scalability, but in my opinion, it's easy to do if you just understand the concepts and can adjust some things based on the concepts. I think where people struggle is they just get so caught up in the what well, has to be exactly this number. And it's like, move it as fast as you can, right? And then adjust the loads for the speed you're looking for. Right. And if you can't look at a bar and know the speed, then you haven't been doing this very long. And so, you know, I, I, I mean, I walked in the other day and one of my coaches was, was doing some velocity based squat work. And, you know, I just looked at it and I said, okay, where are you at in the phase and where, where should this be? And he said, Oh, it's my first week in the wave up. And I said, awesome. You're starting too high because you basically have X amount to go before it's going to slow down too much. And you know what I mean? That took me 30 seconds to, to watch that and know that. Right. And, uh, the, the thing is, it just becomes experience. And I think if you understand those concepts, the concepts I always tell my athletes about is this, if, if you have a wiffle ball, super light, right. And I throw Hewitt stand here and stand for me. I throw a wiffle ball at you. I can't generate any power. It's not going to hurt you. Right. I can throw it. I can throw it as hard as I want. No power. If I have a bowling ball, right. 15 pound bowling ball or whatever. And I throw that at you again, I can't generate power. You can move out of the way because it's moving too slow. If I have a baseball and you're standing right in front of me, I can develop power because it's the appropriate amount of weight for the strength that I have to throw it. And so that's what we talk about. We want to throw baseballs. That's power. And so when I'm doing velocity-based work, I'm looking for the baseball weight, right? I don't want the wiffle ball weight because that's not enough. I don't want the bowling ball weight. I want that baseball weight. And so yeah. that's really, to me, if you understand that concept and you're, you teach your athletes that concept, they can adjust the weight. They know if the bar is moving fast or not. So in other words, it's one of those tools that you mentioned at your disposal. It's not something that you would consider a foundation as a concept that you introduce and integrate into your uh, system. There, there are definitely foundations and principles that apply to everybody. Those are broader and higher level than a specific training methodology or periodization methodology, right? And I think, you know, people get those confused 
periodization program, then you have different methodologies within that, like APRE, BBT, right? Max effort, repetition. Those are just, and people don't understand how to break those down and what those mean. And, and I don't think sometimes they apply them in the appropriate manner. And so your, your principle is the thing that never break for us, build better movement. That, that never breaks. Whoever you are, we want to build better movement, right? Zero pain tolerance training. Look, training should make you feel better, not worse. And, and if you walk out of workouts and you, you feel worse than you came in, then you're not doing it right. And then, you know, there's, and so for us, and then the third one is just teach perfect technique. Look, no one's going to do everything perfectly, especially when they're learning, even after a while. But if you teach them the proper way, right, self-discovery, eventually they'll get there or close. Yeah. So let's talk about one of those principles then for you, which is breathing. This is going to segue us into RPR, reflective performance reset. Um, a thought of like, there are so many different ways to enter this conversation. I just don't think I'm qualified to kind of ask the, the first question and how to get started here. You mentioned breathing. It's like the foundation of your pyramid. Um, I think another good way to introduce RPR possibly might be to think about what is the purpose of a warm-up? Why do we even do the warm-up in the first place? So what should we start with, breathing or warm-ups? Yeah, I, I, well, I think, you know, look, you're a human being. You have a nervous system. You're qualified. Right. Because that's and that's what it's about. Right. Everything that strength conditioning professionals learn about fitness professionals learn about is the neuromuscular system. And then everything we're taught only deals with the muscular system and does nothing for the, the neuro part of neuro. It's the first part of the word. And we've ignored it as an industry. It, it's funny to me when I first realized, like, oh, that's kind of uh, ridiculous. But so, you know, really, you know, for people who aren't familiar with reflexive performance reset, what it is, it's a self-applied system of breath and body work. And so for People, you know, obviously that's a broad statement. That is what it is. It's self-applied, you know, athletes, you know, clients do it themselves. So you talk about principles, every single person who comes in the spot athletics, 10 years old, eight, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50, whatever, starts every session with RPR because the nervous system is the electricity of the body. So when we think about training, right, you're building your house. And so if you walk into a house and the lights are off, you don't start changing light bulbs. You flip the light switch and make sure the electricity's on. RPR is just showing people where the light switches are in their own body, right? And it's if I want this to work, right? So my muscles, though, those are the light bulbs. And it, how if the electricity's not running to them, because look, people, and, and I was taught this, and I believe this for many years, you think with your brain, you know, your brain is what does the thinking and your muscles are what do the moving. Right. I, that's what I learned coming up. And I think mm. most people listen to this podcast would go, yeah, of course, JL, that that makes 100 percent sense. Well, think about this. A cadaver has a brain. A cadaver has muscles, the same as you and I standing here, but it can't think and it can't move. So it isn't the brain and the muscles that do the thinking and moving. It's the nervous system. And so literally the thing that controls us as human beings, the thing that determines how our thinking, our moving is a completely ignored component in all of fitness, performance, strength, conditioning, modern medicine. The thing that controls everything is completely ignored. It's insane. I have a question in relation to the nervous system. 
is it binary or is it a, a spectrum? In, in other words, do you simply shift from a sympathetic state to parasympathetic or vice versa? Or do you scale along a spectrum to one or the other? It, you're always some of one and the other. It's never all or none. Mm. Right? So it's, I'm, you know, parasympathetic, sympathetic, right? And we're just, and so what happens is we cross a threshold where we're more dominant in one than the other. We're not all one or all the other. It's just more dominant of one or the other. And so once you, you know, we, I, I really believe, right? So uh, the <laughs> the same people, that used to cut off your leg be, if you got a scratch on it because they didn't understand what caused infections are the same people that determine fight and flight, rest and recover. So we now know, right? My, my five-year-old son knows germs cause infections, but yet we still are hanging on to fight and flight, rest and recover. It is a total misunderstanding of how the autonomic nervous system works. Flat out, if, if I have my way in 10 years from now, the sympathetic nervous system will be known as survival system and the parasympathetic is performance system. And so when I look at that threshold, how much, where am I in survival mode or I'm in performance mode? That's how I look at it. That's how everyone should look at it. You know, when I started teaching RPR, this concept, I didn't understand this because of what I was taught. And when some strength coaches of mine came through and learned RPR, when, when we started teaching it, you know, they, well, why, you know, when people are lifting or, or, or playing football or getting a you know fight, why do I want them to be parasympathetic? I want them to be sympathetic because I want them I want them to be ready to fight, you know. And and that's it because they don't understand, right? If I'm getting in a fight, I want to be parasympathetic because why? I want to perform. If I'm going to mm-hmm. go to sleep, I want to perform. I want to be good at sleep, right? And so people don't understand this whole concept. They think, and so the way I get people to understand this, it's really simple, right? You know, if, you know, I always take it to kind of a life and death situation, right? If you're in a restaurant and it's just a bunch of normal people and terrorists break in with, you know, guns, everyone's going to freak out and go crazy and probably a bunch of people are going to die. If there's a bunch of tier one operators in a restaurant and terrorists break in with machine guns, they're not, they're, they're going to put them down and go back to eating lunch like nothing happened. Who, who do you want on your team? Right. Who do you want on your team? Right. And I can take it in the sports setting and say, you know, quarterback is fourth quarter. The game's on the line. Do you want the guy in the huddle who's freaking out? Oh, my God, I don't know what we're going to do. I don't know what we're going to do in survival mode. You want to go and guys, we're going to score. No problem. We're going to win. I know which guy I want to want a quarterback in my team. And this is why that those terms are a complete. And this this just goes to where we're at in the world today. And, And it's moving forward. Well, uh, because when we started teaching RPR, you know, it's been, you know, five years ago or whatever, these concepts that we're talking about the nervous system controlling the body. I mean, we're starting with people didn't even understand that this was a thing. Now people kind of are getting to a point, at least at, at some, you know, depends what people's education and, you know, where, who they learn from, they're at least understanding that it's a thing. And so now we're not bringing people from here to here. It's like people are, people is five years. Now people are a little more understanding. And so it's, it's just so interesting to me that, you know, basically the way we talk about it is RPR is a neurological understanding of how humans work. The world that we operate in strength and fitness is a mechanical understanding. And the thing is, is it's not one is right. One is wrong. 
It's just order of operations. The neurological understanding happens first. Everything that we know that I've learned about mechanical structures, attachments, insertions, all that, it's all right. The part that got skipped is the thing that controls it, the nervous system. So when we look at our chains of spot, right, we just go in order of operations, right? So the first thing we do, boom, electric, it's like coming in a dark house, right? Flip on the light switches, right? Then after the light switches, I need, I need good fixtures, right? I need good light fixtures. That's going to be fascia, soft tissue work, those things. Then at the end, I need, I need bright light bulbs, strong muscles, right? So when we train, right, it's, it's going to be RPR. Then it's going to be some kind of, you know, whatever we do for the tissue. Then it's going to be our strength work or speed work or whatever it is we're doing for the day. It, it, it's the natural kind of misconception um, you think about um, how coaches want to stimulate athletes. So, you know, for instance, it, from a primal perspective, you've talked about this, you're walking down the road, a lion jumps out of the bush, your body is going to basically induce a fight or flight response. Your glutes, your biggest muscles, yeah, survival. And, you know, th- that's where like stimulus comes in. It's you know, pre-workout, it's music, it's like a high intensity warm up. That is basically a stimulus that is trying to elicit a response to prepare someone for a workout, but you're saying that it's the wrong stimulus. Is RPR considered a stimulus? Is that a fair characterization? Well, I, I think everything that inputs into your body has an effect, right? And so it's not that it's the wrong stimulus because you have to remember everybody's everybody is in a different state, right? So for some people, right? I might, I might have to shift a little bit, but the difference is, is it's not that you never are going to be in a survival mode. The, the piece is, is that if you go there, it has to be a spike, right? And this is where, you know, a lot of, you know, you look at professional sports and especially the NFL or fights, the guy who's amped up an hour before a fight or an hour before a game, it's never going to do well because he's in survival mode the entire time the guys that perform right so this is what i always go back to everyone's always oh that one time i was in the zone you know that player was in the oh my god they were such in the zone they were in flow right literally the definition of flow or zone or whatever you want to define it as is the ability to remain calm in a situation in which others would deem overly stressful so aka remaining in performance mode when everyone else is in survival mode because when you're when you're in survival mode your heart rate raises all the so you can't actually take in as much afferent information that's why when you're in the flow everything seems to slow down you see more because your body's in a performance state not a survival state and look if a lion jumps out of a bush i want to be in survival state because i need to survive it, I'm not, look, I'm not trained to fight lions. I'm never going to perform in that, right? I, I need to survive. And that means I'm going to have to run away probably through, you know, some thorn bushes and everything. And I want my body conserving energy. I don't want to feel anything. I don't want to see anything. I just want to go and just doesn't matter, right? Things are killing me. I, it doesn't matter. I just want to survive. That's not the way you want to be in the weight room. That's not the way you want to be, especially on a field or a court. If I'm just surviving and I'm staying in this tunnel vision and doing this, and I, I'm not going to perform. I'm going to survive. And that's the piece, right? Anytime you perform, 
you you survived, right? Because you performed. But surviving doesn't mean you performed. You just didn't mm. die. And yeah. the thing about it is, right, in life, you know, whatever, 20,000 years ago, lions did jump out at us all the time. And, and so our bodies adapted over millions of years to have our nervous system automatically without us really knowing or realizing for the most part that these changes were happening so we could survive. The, the thing is, is we've changed our entire environment and now things aren't trying to kill us. Only our body doesn't know that. And so it goes into survival mode. And that's what RPR does, right? Is it puts us back in performance mode. So what happens is there's these neurological compensation patterns and people need to understand when people talk about compensation patterns, they're talking about mechanical compensations of movement. I'm talking about neurological compensations where the firing pattern that initiates movement is different. That you can't see watching someone move. Well, you can once you really know what you're doing. But but just in general, people don't know what they're looking for. They're looking at mechanical compensation. We don't deal with mechanical compensation. We deal with neurological compensation patterns. And so hip extension should be glute, hamstring, contralateral, QL. And, but when people are in survival mode, that pattern changes. And now the hamstring and that neurological compensation pattern might fire first. Now that's where we get a pulled hamstring and everybody goes, oh, I didn't do enough eccentric work. I didn't do enough single leg work. No, the electricity got turned off and yeah. there's no amount of training that could have changed that because you're dealing with mechanical structures and it was an electrical issue, Right. If my, I'll pay my light bill and my electricity is cut off, it don't matter how many great light bulbs I go buy at Home Depot or how many lamps I buy, electricity's off. And this is the issue when we look at injury mechanisms. The nervous system's been completely ignored. I mean, I talked to a head of a movement lab at a major university and I showed him and he, his mind was blown. He couldn't believe the strength differences by changing the neurological pattern. But he goes, I don't, one, I don't know how we would measure this. Two, I don't know who would pay for it. It seems it like, oh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, because the thing is, is if you start, if, if you pay for these studies and while well, one, there's, there, there is some things to measure, but anyway, it's a different story, but you can measure results, but it's hard to measure. Like you can't actually take a picture and watch neurological firing sequence as it happens. So there's some pieces there that basically you can show a ton of results, but if people want to argue science, be like, well, you don't know that it's coming from that. I guess not. Except for tens of thousands of people have done a, a you know, a test RPR retest and it works for 10,000 yeah. people all over the world. So I, I guess yeah. maybe I don't have proof, but I guess I always believe no. I always said this about Westside, right? Like, you don't think it works, but those world records on the board tell me it do. Yeah. Well, I've been a stand-in demo for RPR. I, I know it works. The concept makes sense. Um, I'm also getting the, you know, um, the impression here that there are implications to being in the survival state, um, like multiple implications. You said there's an inverse relationship between the performance state and the survival state. So suppressing the survival state seems like just an important part of RPR as transitioning someone into the performance state. Like for one, you mentioned, you know, some of the things that come with the, the survival state, but I'm thinking about adrenal fatigue, thinking about there's probably, a, it's probably a stress event and being in a survival state that you have to recover from that you don't get in the survival state. Is that fair to say? Yeah. I mean, the thing we tell all our clients, you don't get better from training. You get better from recovering from training. And if you're in survival mode, 24 hours a day, you're not recovering. Now, 
you're recovering some, right? Because it's, you know, you're going to sleep, you're going to, but I mean, it, and, you're really, and the human body is a, res- it, it is a resilient organism. I mean, yeah, we're not going to keel over. No. And, and I mean, the thing is, right. Is that's where, you know, and I see this all the time, you know, people go to doctors, my knees hurt, my back hurts, this and that. And, you know, doctor, well, you're just getting old. And then they come to us and they feel freaking great. Well, it's not you're getting old. It's that your nervous system over time, right? You talk about these stress events and pushing us into that survival state. Again, when we're 23, we're a lot more resilient. But also the cumulative effect is 23 years of cumulative effect. When you get to 35, it's 35 years of cumulative effect. And your stress events are more often, right? When I was 23, what stress did I have, right? No kids, single, right? I mean, I'm just working for other people. It didn't matter. Now I got two businesses, you know, a spouse. I got kids. I got ex-wives, right? Like all these things, right? I got more stress events. And so the the thing about it is, is those stress events are, are become more often as you are older and you just have the cumulative effect of them. So now you start feeling it, right? And the way that I look at it is basically the environment we've created with the stress events every day, being on a Zoom call, telephone, all these things, driving our cars. It's like taking a tiny dose of poison every single day. The, the thing is, if someone was feeding you a tiny dose of poison every day, you wouldn't know it. You wouldn't know it because because these stress events, they're micro. So if someone's feeding you micro poison doses, you go years without realizing. Then eventually, one day, all of a sudden, some symptoms would crop up. And and you'd be like, God, my my knees hurt, my back, my elbows hurt. Well, then you go to a doctor and what does the doctor do? They treat the symptoms, right? That's what physical therapy, all this right now, we just treat symptoms. So, oh, your elbow hurts, your knee hurts. Well, guess what? Maybe the symptom gets a little better, but then another symptom pops. Why? Because I didn't stop taking the poison or I didn't give myself an antidote to the poison. And that's the beautiful thing about RPR is that RPR is the antidote to that survival poison. However, no one's moving to the mountains and being a Sherpa. We're all going to keep feeding ourselves that poison every day because this environment is not changing. So that's the thing about RPR is you have to do it every day. It's multiple times a day because you're taking the poison in all day long. You, you need to get the antidote every day. And to be clear, RPR is self-applied. You don't yeah, do no, RPR yeah. to someone. It's you teach no. it to someone. It's an autonomous concept. It's, it, that's why I said it's a self-applied system of breath and body work. Mm-hmm. And that, that's super key. It's self-applied. The clinics, I've been to multiple now, level one and level two. They're great. I'm sure they're harder to put on today, but you have developed your online course. Is that right? Yeah. So we have our level one online. And actually, uh, this weekend, um, Cal and Chris are coming in town and we've already shot most of level two. We're just finishing up. So we're actually going to have level two online as well here in the next couple months. So level one's amazing. I mean, you know, you put those things together and you go, okay, you know, I'm an old school guy, love in person. Now I'm at the point where I think level one online is almost better than the in-person because we've had so much time to add to it that nothing Mm -hmm. gets missed. Whereas in a live clinic, people are asking questions and we don't miss anything per se, but I I just feel like now because we've been able to build out that level one over time, it's like, oh yeah, we could add this, we can add that. So it's nice Mm -hmm. because when people get the level one, they have it evergreen, they can have it forever. So it's just a resource to where they can refer back. 
And that's not to say if you do resume the in-person clinics, I mean, they're fantastic because the test, you partner up, you test, you know, you, you work with one another. That was so invaluable. It was just invaluable, I think, to see the results kind of take well, place instantaneously. Well, it's, you know, what a lot of people do is, so if you buy the online and come to in-person, you come to the in-person and buy the online, if you do one of them first, you get the other one at half off. So mm. most, and I don't say most people, but a lot of people will do the online, come to the in-person, right? It's just, Hey, I mm. want, I want, you know? And so for me though, I've had, I've taught, you know, level twos where, uh, you know, the people come and they've all done online and they all are, they have it all down. So, you know, I don't, at this point, I think it just, one of those comes down to preference. Do you like being an in-person? And I think the level two is the same way. Uh, you know, we've beta tested some of it with people and the same thing, the, it, all the information is there. It's just some people, right. I'm one of them. I like in-person stuff. Uh, I just, I learn better that way. I like touching feelings, but you know, you know, informationally speaking, the, the online clinic, you, you know, you, you get everything, uh, and more. Yeah. Um, RPR works. We've seen it. You've worked with thousands and thousands of people yet the institution that we operate in. Um, places value on uh, objective research, scientific research. Do you look to scientific research as uh, like a boon to RPR in the future? Do you think there's a, a future for RPR in the scientific community? Yes, I think there, two things have to happen. Uh, I think technology has to increase, and and there's some good uh, pieces that that are coming into place with brain scans and, and different pieces. Uh, so we're getting there with the nervous system. More people are, I mean, five years ago, no one, you know, we were talking about the nervous system and people looked, it's like, we're crazy. Now we talk about it and they go, well, tell me a little more because I've heard the nervous system's important, yeah. right? And so I think it's moving there. And I think in five, I mean, technology is advanced. So I think in five years, we'll be, we'll have a way to just go, this is exactly what's going on right now. We, we just go, look, <laughs> this is the, this is the test. Do RPR is a retest it. It works. And I mean, there's so many, I mean, we have so many studies like, you know, like that, you know, however, it's that in between, right. Actually being able to take a picture of what's happening with the nervous system and do those, that is just not, there's just technology doesn't exist today. Mm -hmm. There are uh, a lot of, once once it does, I think then it's, it's, then it's people go, Oh Yeah. You know, yeah, there are uh, a lot of my clients, especially at the high school level, that are great proponents of RPR. They speak up in the NHSSCA Facebook group, which is a very large group, mostly of high school coaches. Um, you know, I, I'm always having these conversations and then going to the leaders of that group and, you know, proposing people to speak because, you know, as you talked about the emphasis of our industry on the mechanical um, I mean, that's, that's, that's so true. And the emphasis is totally on the mechanical. Uh, and then if it's not, it's, it's on the, what I call the professional or administrative side of things. So they talk about, you know, those aspects of it. Um, but this is a, like a new dimension. It, it needs talking about, it needs introduction. And I really hope sometime you have the opportunity to take us up on presenting to the NHSSC and what you, what you talk about. Yeah. I mean, I think there's so much, you know, it's funny, you you come into our facility and, you know, people are doing different things with their eyes, right. And they're doing RPR and all, 
if you're not if you're not training that neurological side, and there's a lot more to it, right? I mean, RPR is you know the way I look at it is is RPR sets the foundation, and then there's a lot of other neurological pieces that you can build on top of it and vestibular aspects, and you know we're really scratching the surface. The great part about RPR is it sets a foundation where you can build some of these other components of of the neurological vestibular, all of these on top. And then we go mechanical, right? But, you know, I, it's funny. We, so we had a kid, this is interesting. So we had a, it was a pro athlete. I mean, so we're doing 10 yard flies and uh, he ran, uh, it was a 0.95, which is fast. I mean, it's fast. And uh, so he runs that, how that feel good, this and that. So I had him do a couple things with his eyes. We had him do a, a, a couple things with RPR and with his eyes and he ran again and we had him, uh, and now what we did though, we did that neural and then we gave a little mechanical do this, right? So we layered and then he ran a 0.89, right? And, and we said, how'd that feel? Because I didn't feel like it was as fast because he wasn't working as hard and, but he ran 0.89. And so our point was, look, 0.95 was what you ran. Now you're running 0.89. Now you can run a 0.95 every single play. Whereas before you get that one play and now you're up to whatever, you know, point, you know, 1.0, you know, 101, right? And so these components instantly affect performance, no different than walking in your house and flipping on a light switch instantly makes your house bright. And so the thing where people get lost in the concept is they go, how long does it last? Well, how long can you flip a light switch on and off? You just have to understand the concept you do RPR yourself. So once you understand if the light switch on or off, you can instantly turn it on yourself, just like a light switch in your house. And that's getting people like they still have the mechanical understanding. So how long does it last? Isn't a neurological question, right? If I had a bunch of kids running around my house, I wouldn't say, oh, how long are the lights going to stay on for? And they're flipping light switches on and off. But the mechanical aspect of a light bulb with electricity constantly run to it, it'll burn for 5,000 hours. That's a mechanical limit, just like a muscle yeah. has a mechanical limit but the electricity is what controls what's happening mechanically and that's where people yeah. get confused in that concept and i did when i first started learning all of this I, I asked that question too because i was still thinking in the mechanical mode right i'm thinking how long does the light bulb last versus is the electricity running to the light bulb yes or no yes awesome no let's flip the switches on yeah i'm thinking the first thing that comes to mind is like the batter in the batter's box they watch a pitch, they step out of the batter's box, and there's usually some sort of physical routine. That seems like a behavioral compensation to return them to the state that they know they have to prepare for, which is that really short, instantaneous kind of high-pressure state. And you're talking about basically a physiological approach to, to, to that. that you know, they're, they're, that's the human body's attempt to basically prepare for the state that it knows it has to be entered into. Yeah, I mean, we see this with high-level athletes all the time. Once we show them RPR, they'll be aspects of it that the oh i just i do that right there's just little mm -hmm. thing right oh i i rub there when i get stressed out or i do that mm -hmm. and so it's at a high level i mean there's some breathing aspects i knew nothing about it you know back in the day powerlifting but there were some things i did that now i understand why yeah. they made me feel better right i mean even from simple things before I would take a big bench, I would rock on the bench and now I understand some of the vestibular application of why that helped my performance. Yeah. It's so interesting. I love it so much. The, the neurosystem is mentioned, not often, but it's mentioned, but it's just not examined. It's not interrogated, not nearly to the point that, that, that like you mentioned, the mechanical stuff. It's, 
it's so cool. I love it. I, I found myself, you know, when I know I'm going into a workout, I habitually start some RPR processes. Um, and it's related to what you just talked about. You're naturally, your body's like naturally gravitating towards it because it anticipates the state that it has to perform. And, and then exactly. it starts adapting some of those things that you get into it with. Um, it's beautiful. We're coming up to, to more than an hour, but I don't think people will mind. We had such a good time. RPR is like a, something we can talk about for hours, which we do at the clinics and we do in the online course. Um, so I just encourage everyone here, RPR, Google it, you'll find it. We have some articles on Team Builder about it, um, some technical articles on it. And we also have some uh, testimonials of coaches who've implemented it over the course of the season and, and observed the results. It's fantastic. Um, so JL, any last words for the uh, audience? Yeah, you know, everybody using Team Builder, I mean, we, we've implemented it at the spot and, it, and I love it. And for people who don't, right? I, I think the biggest thing is our, our goal is performance. Let's keep let's keep away from thinking our goal is to make people stronger and and make them tired. That's strength conditioning. It's performance. If I have a power lifter, strength is their performance. So regardless of who I'm working with, it's performance. I have to understand what performance looks like and then train to get those adaptations. For an athlete, it's speed, right? It, it just is the strongest guy on the field can be sitting on the bench all the time. The best weight room guy a lot is never the best athlete. The fastest guy on the field always is going to be on the field playing. And so for everyone out there, if you work with athletes, you work with adults, whoever you work with, keep performance as the, the goal, right? We're performance coaches, right? Unless you're just a straight powerlifting coach and then you are a strength coach. Right. And so let's let's just keep this. Let's move our field forward by focusing on the things we should be making and and just stop giving people junk food fitness because they want it. That that's my biggest thing. Mm. I love it. It's great. And and I want to tell you, JL, I, there's like a few people over the course of my career that I've seen speak or present. And I remember thinking, like, damn, um, I love I love it so much. I love the way they present it. I respect that, you know, the research and the effort they put into to building this. You were one of those people. The first time I saw you speak at Holy Cross, I loved it so much. I, and I, every time I see folks like that, I'm like, I wish they were my customer because I want to be associated with them. And and scary, scary Schofield, Fred Eves, Lauren Landau, these are people that I remember the first time I they saw them speak. They were not my customers, and I thought, holy shit, it, you know, these are high quality people who are leading the field, and I I just want to work with them in some kind of way. So I just want to say I'm grateful for that. That you know we, he can help you and what you're doing. We're a small piece of your system, a small piece of your puzzle, um, but we're honored to, to play that role. So thank you for that. Well, thank you for that compliment. It means a lot. I mean, obviously, you know, I put a lot of time and effort and, and take a lot of pride in, in not just presenting great information, but but putting it out to, to people in a mm -hmm. way that's easy to understand. And I think a lot of people get up there and they talk and they get them talking. It's so complicated. And I just came up in a world where, you know, I, I grew up, my grandpa, I mean, the biggest thing, right. If, if you don't, if you can't explain something simply, you simply don't understand it. And yeah. so I really try to relate that in a way, you know, what we've talked about today with the neurological and RPR and all that, it is super complicated but when we can boil it down to just flipping on the light switches of your body, anybody can understand that. And that's what means a lot to me is being able to, to not, not just be able to, to present great information, but to be able to present it in a way that anybody can take away and learn and, and utilize that information. Yeah. And it's the foundation for the coach athlete relationship. You want the athlete to buy in. 
That's a big part of it. So you did it, man. It was awesome. So folks, I'm going to share JL's information. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to share your information on the, the show notes. Um, a lot of coaches and strength conditioning space, hopefully some reach out to you. Definitely go to RPR, go to the website, check out our blogs that we have up on it. You won't regret it. And uh, JL, I hope to have you on again soon, man. I hope to see you in person soon in the clinics. I know, man. I hope to see you in person. And, you know, people, you know, obviously they can go to reflexiveperformance.com to, to learn more about RPR. They can follow us on social. Personally, if they go to coach underscore JL on Instagram, if they, you know, if they have questions or anything about anything we talked about, that's the best place to get a hold of me. Yeah. And, and of course, your newsletter, which I subscribe to, it's a great newsletter. Do that. It doesn't fly out every week. It brings good information every time it comes out. Um, so if anything, just go to the website, subscribe, and let the information come to you. That's a good one, too. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So thanks, Hewitt. I really appreciate you having me on, man. Thanks uh, for your time. And uh, thanks for everything you're doing with Team Builder because is really, I think, pushing a lot of things forward in our industry and getting a lot of good information out just be, besides being a great product. I appreciate that. Thank you, JL, for coming on. Hope to see you soon. All right, brother. Take care, man. Have a good one. Bye. You too. Bye. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Team Builder Podcast. If you have an idea for a guest or a topic that you would like us to discuss on our format, go ahead and reach out to me. My email is hewitt at teambuilder.com. Thanks again for listening.